Hello friends and welcome to another episode of a tired grad student study psychology. My name is Nick and right now we're going to talk about uh, sort of the next phase in theory and thought which is something that's so popular today and it's called behaviorism. So behaviorism is just as it sounds, it, it really focuses on behaviors, observable behaviors, and how that affects our mental health and really what can we learn from behaviors. Because if you remember in the early 1900s, the psychoanalysis or psychodynamic theories, which we talked about in previous episodes, were dominating the field. And again, that was the main assumption of unconscious conflicts and desires that were the basis of mental disorders. And at this time, there was just a lot of growing disconnect between the psychoanalytics and what would later become the behaviorist. And it really started with this guy named Joseph Wolpe, who is a South African psychologist. He noted that psychoanalytic thought was purely unscientific and he noted this when he criticized freud's famous study of little hans and his fear of horses where you probably guessed it his fear of horses stemmed from his oedipus complex and repressed sexual urges so what were scientists and researchers supposed to do with this? You know, psychoanalytic thought was purely just philosophical, which is not wrong, but we're, we're now getting to the age where we want things to be backed up by data. And how can psychologists who say that they want to study human thought behavior study this and they had a good idea which was to link it to what was directly experienced and in other words you know what can we objectively see and study that can be verified so this was the start of behaviorism so again, what is behaviorism? Well, it's the theory that seeks to understand how we learn. And we started talking about this when we talked about Pavlov and his theory of classical conditioning. Now remember, that was, the, that was researching the association that the dogs learned between the food and the bell. But we know that human behavior is much more complex than that. And that's where we get uh, what we call operant conditioning. Who really came up with this new theory? Well, we're going to talk about just two people right now. And we're going to learn about much more as we go along. But the first one is John B. Watson. John Watson had his uh, famous study called the Little Albert Study. And what he did was Watson and his lab partner showed that they can condition fear into a nine-month-old child. Now, this is a study that is not looked in good light anymore. It's really a study that we learn the mistakes from. We, we don't really do this anymore. But they did this by banging a, a loud cymbal or a clanging sound when Watson or Rayner presented a little Albert with a, a white rat. They repeated these associations a lot more. And what happened was that John Watson and his lab partner found that they can condition fear of a white rat uh, to little Albert. 
So after the pairings of the loud clanging and the white rat, at the presentation of the white rat, little Albert would start crying and running away. And if you think that this sounds familiar, it's because this is actually classical conditioning. But this is much more significant than Pavlov because he was actually conditioning humans which was not really thought of uh, until this, you know, it was really done with animals and it can be easily done with animals, but this is a significant study that we still talk about today. And it's so significant because just listen to what Rainer wrote in her notebook. She wrote, the instant the rat was shown, the baby began to cry. Almost instantly, he turned sharply to the left, fell over on his side, raised himself on all fours, and began to crawl away so rapidly that he was caught with difficulty before reaching the edge of the table. What does that really mean? Well, they they took a nine-month-old that we would consider to not have any sort of natural fear of a white rat, and they conditioned him to have so much fear that he uh, was so afraid of this rat. And there's, there's videos of this and just the crying and the, the loud sounds. Uh, it's really a, a crazy experiment that they did on this little boy. But it really just goes to show that we can start conditioning humans now. And this finally ended up with Watson saying probably his most famous quote. And uh, I, I learned this quote as an undergrad, and it's such, a, such an interesting idea. So Watson said in his book in 1925, just simply called Behaviorism, he wrote, Give me a dozen healthy infants, well-informed in my own specific world, to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee you to take anyone at random and train him to become any type of specialist I may select doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant chief, and yes, even a beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents, penchants, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors. So what was his claim? Well, he made the bold claim of saying, hey, I can condition any kid to become anything I want them to be through these trials these associations and i can condition them to learn how to become you know a doctor lawyer artist stuff like that and this was these were bold claims you know next we have bf skinner and bf skinner is probably the most famous uh behaviorist of them all uh even though john watson was considered the father of behaviorism so in 1931 he received his phd from harvard and there he studied human behavior. Later at Harvard, Skinner created what's called an operant conditioning apparatus, which we later now know as a Skinner box. And it is a device that contains a level or a bar that an animal could press or push in order to receive food, water, or something else of value. And while using these Skinner boxes, he noticed something that Pavlov and Watson did not notice. He saw that some behaviors were dependent on what happens after it was completed. And so he called this operant behavior. You know, and this means any behavior that responds to the environment and that leads to consequences. So as opposed to Watson and Pavlov's responded behavior, which is automatic and reflexive, 
reflexive, such as pulling your hand back from a stove, an operant conditioned or an operant behavior is any behavior that follows a reinforcement. So Skinner noticed that behaviors are modified by two types of stimuli, a reinforcer and a punishment. A reinforcer is just simply something that strengthens or a behavior and increases its frequency. So think about a rat in one of these Skinner boxes. The rat associates a lever press with a food pellet. So they've already made that distinction and association. So now whenever the rat presses a lever, it receives food. Well, that's a reinforcer because he knows or she knows or whatever the rat is, knows that if they press the lever, then they would get food. On the other hand though, a punishment decreases the frequency of behavior. So Skinner also studied pigeons a lot too. There's a really famous study he did with pigeons where he would give them a continuous reinforcement and they associated that with whatever behavior they were doing. And so <laughs> he, he noticed that some pigeons were just bobbing their head a lot or some pigeons were flapping their wings a lot. It's actually a really cool study. So with a punishment, imagine a pigeon stops flapping its wings after you remove a loud sound, which the bird hates. So that's, that's a punishment. Uh, it's decreasing a behavior such as flapping its wings at either the removal or, you know, adding something. So if we remove something, that's called a negative reinforcer or punishment. And that's just simply taking something adversive away. So again, with the pigeon, if the pigeon hates, you know, a loud sound or a bright light, removing something would be a negative. And then you would classify that as either a reinforcer or punishment. So again, if the pigeon hits the loud sound and it's flapping its wings, you take the loud sound away, it's flapping its wings, it would be a negative punishment. Whereas a positive reinforcer or punishment is giving something in addition just like giving a sticker to a kid who says please or thank you. With this research, Skinner found something really interesting. He found that these different reinforcements can be put on different schedules. So what does that mean? Well, I talked about earlier a continuous reinforcement. So it's a one-to-one -one ratio. So for every behavior you do, you get a reinforcement. And you that's the quickest way to produce a behavior. So for instance, in his study with the pigeons, he just gave out a random reinforcement for any behavior. The association was quickly picked up and the bird did exactly what it did to get that reinforcement. So let's say a, a bird bobbed its head, uh, received a reinforcement. Awesome. It learned that if I bob my head, I get a food pellet. So they would keep doing it and each time you if it's a one-to-one -one ratio each time it bobbed its head it would get a food pellet so it increased that behavior so if i'm at remember if i'm adding something and i'm increasing a behavior that's a positive reinforcement but a continuous reinforcement can only last so long when the reinforcer loses its power. Skinner noticed that he can produce different frequencies of behavior with different schedules of reinforcement. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's say that you get a reinforcement after five behaviors. 
let's say I'm using very generalized definitions right now and we'll get down to the nitty-gritty in a second <laughs> but let's say that uh, that would be considered a fixed ratio so a fixed ratio is really characterized by a high response rate with a brief pause after the reinforcement. So if we put this on a graph with the y-axis being the number of behaviors, you would see a lot of behaviors happening in a short amount of time with just a brief sort of edge down signifying a pause. And again, this is really helpful to produce rapid and steady learning but the behavior quickly stops after the reinforcer is given. So an example of this would be, let's say a child receives a candy after she completes five questions on her homework. Well, what that would look like on a graph is she would do five questions, get the reinforcement, and then have a brief pause. Do five questions, get the reinforcement, have a brief pause. It's a way to get her to do the homework, but not a good way to help that last a long time. So let's say that we don't want to use a fixed ratio, but we wanted to use something that relies on the varying behaviors uh, or varying number of behaviors in a trial. Well, there is a schedule of reinforcement called the variable ratio reinforcement. So this is something that reinforces a behavior after a number of behaviors between a set range that varies each time a reinforcement is administered. So what does that mean? A group of researchers in a lab setting will set aside a, a range of numbers of behaviors that they want to see the participant do and randomly they will pick a number between that range to give a reinforcement. So what does that look like? Well, that looks like, let's say that a child has trouble picking up his toys and his mom agrees to give him one piece of a bite of a cake after each time he picks up a toy, but the number of times or the number of toys he picks up should vary between one and five. So let's break this down by trial. Trial one, he gets a reinforcement after one toy picked up, so he gets a reinforcement. The next trial, he gets a reinforcement after two toys are picked up. Next trial, he gets a reinforcement after five toys are picked up. So the, the number of times the behavior has to be done varies between each reinforcement. This leads to a unpredictable rate, but a, a high and steady behavior response. You know, there's only a brief pause like the fixed ratio after the reinforcement. And this actually brings into the question of how addictions are created, especially the gambling addiction. So how slot machines work are they are designed by giving you a reinforcement after a variable number of pulls from the lever. And so what this creates is someone doing a bunch of 
actions or behaviors such as pulling the lever for money and getting reinforced at a very number of time and it leads to someone doing it more and more because they know eventually the reinforcement is going to come but they just don't know how or when. And this leads to a lasting change in behavior. Let's get away from the amount of behaviors and let's focus more on the time that is happening if the behavior has been completed. So a fixed interval schedule is a schedule that reinforces someone if they're doing the target behavior only after a set amount of time is allotted. So what does, what does that look like? So let's say a teacher has a student who is very disruptive and he does not want to raise his hand and just blurts out an answer when the teacher is asking a question. And it's motivated more because he just wants the acknowledgement from the teacher. So the, so the teacher devises a plan to only call on him after he raises his hand within a two-minute interval. The reinforcement will only come after, after a behavior is done within the two-minute interval. So timer starts within two minutes. Uh, this child has a chance to raise his hand. And if he raises his hand after a question is asked, then he gets a reinforcement. So this is characterized by a long pause until the time is close to being done and then an explosion of behavior. So in this example, the kid will learn that he is going to get reinforced between two minutes if he raises his hand. So there's not going to be any hand raising until minute 45 seconds. Uh, and then he'll raise his hand, you know. And so that looks like a scalloped uh, graph that goes all the way up. So there's a long pause and then... As soon as it gets close to the time, then there's a rapid explosion of behavior. And then again, a long pause and then rapid explosion of behavior. One of the last schedules of reinforcement that we'll talk about and that Skinner really had something to do with was what's what we call a variable interval. So just like the variable ratio, uh, the variable interval will reinforce a behavior after the behavior is done within a set range of time. So again, uh, researchers with Skinner would say, okay, we're going to make a range of time between one minute and five minutes, and it's going to be random. The rat in the Skinner box can press the lever within that time we allot and get something. So the graph in this sense will look much more like the fixed interval graph, but it's more steadier and more streamlined than the, remember the scalped version of that. They're not gonna have a longer break because they don't know when they're gonna get the reinforcement. And it's harder to extinct this behavior because the schedule doesn't, you know, someone doesn't know when their next reinforcement will be. So let's take the same example as the kid raising his hand. But let's say that the teacher calls on the student at a random time between two to five minutes. Remember, he has to be raising his hand during the interval to be reinforced with being called on. 
And we talked about extinction too. Extinction is basically when a reinforcement is withheld indefinitely, then the behavior will decrease over time until it's not done anymore. So an example of this would be a kid screams at the grocery store, and we all love these kids very, very much, uh, because she is not getting the attention she wants. Well, her mom does not give her attention, and over time, hopefully, the kid stops screaming. With the research that Skinner and Watson did, it, it helped pave the way really for modern behaviorism. Now, so how can we build upon the work of Skinner and Watson? Well, there's a couple of things that are important to talk about. And the first being that we can implement reinforcement in therapy. So remember, a reinforcement is anything that can increase the behavior or the frequency of the behavior. So for kids, it's pretty easy for kids. It's like candy, snacks, screen time, or even high fives. You know that sometimes kids just love a high five. But for adults, it's a lot harder. You know, we categorize high level reinforcements as primary and secondary reinforcers. So these are part of Skinner's operant conditioning and a primary reinforcer it's just a reinforcer that is not learned, but naturally leads us to increase our behavior. So a, an example of this would be sex, food, water, and you know, stuff like that, you know, that primary stuff. And if you remember, we talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that would be the lowest uh, need that we should get met. A secondary reinforcer is any reinforcer that is learned to increase a behavior. So this includes money, the sense of pride, or the sense of a job well done. You know, in, a, in therapy, a secondary reinforcer can be a great starting place to increase behaviors like completing work or doing chores around the house. But a primary reinforcer can help secondary reinforcers through their association. So let's talk about Joe for a second. Joe doesn't want to work anymore because he lost his job. And his wife reminds him that they need to make uh, money because one paycheck is not going to help them feed their family. So that's a primary reinforcer, you know, of he has to work because the, the reinforcer is you know, eating. But you see as the therapy goes on that, you know, you, you remind Joe that he did do a great job at his work and he did feel a sense of pride, which is a secondary reinforcer. So you can, you can start by the primary reinforcer of, okay, you need food. That's going to help you get to work because, uh, the reinforcement of eating will reinforce the behavior of going to work. But the secondary reinforcer can help uh, really build a target behavior better than what a primary reinforcer can do. That is with being um, having a great sense of pride, uh, a, a job well done, and stuff like that. But we don't want to just have a primary and secondary reinforcer that we just have to keep giving to the client or Joe in this sense. Uh, we want them to have uh, sort of their own control on 
their mental health, which brings us to what we call a self-reinforcer. You know, self-reinforcers are any reinforcers that we can inherently use to help increase our own behavior. And this includes, you know, stuff like buying a coffee after studying for a test. And next leads us to what we call intrinsic and extrinsic reinforcers. Extrinsic reinforcers are any reinforcers that happen to have or be outside the person. This includes money, sex, fame, anything outside the person. But an intrinsic reinforcer comes from within an individual, like feeling a sense of pride or a sense of a job well done. You know, and this is the therapist's goal is to train the client to find ways to use positive and negative reinforcement, adding something good or taking something adversive away, using primary and secondary reinforcers intrinsically. We also have a way to to differentiate the stimuli that are around us in the environment, and this is done through classical conditioning. So... Let's say that you have the ability to differentiate the difference between two or more stimuli. Well, you would be able to what we call discriminate against the stimulus. So let's say that Joe is afraid of doing a poor job, um, and he is, but he is able to differentiate his friend telling him that he did not so good of a job versus his boss telling him the same thing. Um, he's not going to act the same way if his friend or his boss told him the same thing. But if he does respond in the same way with the same stimuli as saying you you did not do a good job, we would consider that a stimulus generalization, which is the inability to differentiate the difference between two or more stimuli. So this show this this is shown in classical conditioning where a conditioned response occurs in the presence of other stimuli. So let's say that, let's go all the way back to Pavlov. Let's say that Pavlov had a metronome ringing and a bell ringing when he brought out the food. Well, the, the dogs wouldn't be able to differentiate the two because they were presented at the same time. So therefore, we would say that the dogs have generalized the stimulus of a ringing bell, for instance. Whereas if Pavlov only rang the bell um, when the food is presented, then they would be able to discriminate the stimulus. And, and probably an easier way to say this is, let's say a kid sees a zebra at the zoo and calls it a horse. Well, that's a that's generalization. He sees two ears, four hoofs, and a tail, and says, oh, that's a horse. Whereas if he said, no, that's a zebra, that would be a discrimination. You know, he would be um, able to differentiate between a horse and a zebra. So that ends our first part of operant conditioning. And it's really fun to talk about. I love operant conditioning because I used to work in this field. I was what's called a registered behavioral technician. And I really did what's called applied behavioral analysis with kids 
diagnosed with autism. And it was one of my favorite jobs. I had it when I was in undergrad. And we used a lot of these concepts. And I might talk about that more in a bonus episode. But for right now, this is it. We're going to talk about more things in detail in the next episode. In the meantime, study hard.